Welcome back to the podcast. This is the God Stuff Podcast with yours truly, Bill Giovanetti, where we go bigger, better, and deeper, a bigger impact for Christ in the gospel, a better understanding of scripture, how to interpret and apply it, and a deeper walk and experience of the grace of God that is yours because you belong to Jesus Christ. Today, we're going bigger. And this is a continuation from last podcast, episode 150. The topic is revival. A revival is hot topic these days, and it should be. I have been praying for and preaching for and hoping for revival for many, many years. And we do see some, well, just, just say some inklings, some beginnings of revival. I'm very concerned, though, that there's never been a revival, obviously, that has been so broadcast on social media. And because it's on social media, it just really brings in trolls and weirdos and celebrities who want to get FaceTime and, oh my goodness, just leave this alone. Let God do what God's going to do. Social media can be a great asset and a great tool to spread the message of grace and of the gospel and of Christ. But we're talking about revival. So in last podcast, and in this one, I'm giving you two messages I preached at Pathway Church here in Redding, California, during COVID, during the COVID lockdowns. And those were two messages on revival, part of our high-intensity summer. You should know that our church did not back down during the COVID lockdowns. We did more stuff during COVID lockdowns than our own church and many other churches can do in a year. And uh, it was because we used outside, we just got real ingenious. What can a church do without a building. I mean, this was the early church. They did use synagogues. They did use homes, but they really didn't have auditoriums or buildings like so many of our churches have today. So we did a lot. The answer is a lot. I'm not going to go into that now. Maybe I'll do a podcast on it. But I did preach on revival. So in the last message, I talked about the three great awakenings America has experienced. Um, since I preached that sermon, many others are calling the Jesus Revolution of the 1970s America's fourth great awakening. That may be. I don't know that it has the national scope and impact that the first three great awakenings have, but America was was a smaller country back during those great awakenings. Anyway, we're talking about revival. And in this message, you're going to hear a message I preached during, I think, 2021 or 2022, I forget, but you're going to hear a message I preached about a theology of revival. So I gave you a history of revival in the last episode. In the, today's episode, which is 151, A Theology of Revival, I was watching a YouTube video with Justin Brierley, the Unbelievable Podcast. Awesome, awesome, awesome guy. Awesome podcast. We've had him speak for us at Pathway, actually during the COVID lockdowns. So do uh, do check out his podcast. But he had uh, an interview talking about, is this Asbury thing an actual revival? And one of his guests, I don't know where she came from or what her background is, but she made this statement. She said, the Bible does not talk about revival. And I could not disagree more strongly. Yes, the Bible does talk about revival. Revival is a whole theological concept. In fact, there is a manual of revival in the Bible. The book of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, is a history of revival among the Jews. And it is a very, very clear theological statement, Second Chronicles 7.14. We'll refer to that in today's episode as kind of the theme verse. Um, so I won't go into that here, except to say revival is a theological category. It is a biblical category. It is taught throughout scripture. And today's episode, we're going to talk about a theology of revival. Again, I want to say, if you haven't yet seen the Jesus Revolution movie, please go see it. It's going to touch your heart. It's going to ignite interest in your own heart about revival. It's going to melt or thaw out maybe some of the cold, icy, frosty places of your heart. The Jesus Revolution movie, please go see it. Or if you're listening to this after it's already left the theaters, 
just go rent it, go get some friends to get your church. We had two filled theaters from our church. We filled the theater, two different theaters twice. We're always looking for these kind of opportunities. So please go see the movie. I've been encouraging it since before it came out in our church. And also check out veritasschool.life. That's my online seminary. If you ever want to just take some of the boring, mundane out of your Christian life and fire yourself up and get your power back and your peace back and your courage back and your muscle back and your fire for God back, go check it out. V-E-R-I-T-A-S school dot life. And without further ado, oh, subscribe, uh, share, leave a review. There you go. Let's get into Revival Part 2. Welcome to the God Stuff Podcast with Bill Giovanetti, the home of grace-powered living. Because grace isn't an app. It's an operating system. Here's Bill. Hey, man, it's good to see you. Thanks for being at church today. Welcome to Pathway and everybody in the Ministry Center Auditorium where all the cool kids are. So glad you are here. If you have your Bible, would you open your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 2? This is toward the back part of your Bible, and it's after the red letters end. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Well, there's a little more in Corinthians, but we'll just go with that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, chapter 2. We we won't get there for several minutes, but this will kind of be our home base, Acts, chapter 2. And I am going to start in another place in Scripture, in the Old Testament. I'll put all the verses on the screens so you can follow along. Isaiah 64, 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, tear apart the heavens. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. That's a prayer from the ancient prophet Isaiah. We're talking today about our high-intensity summer, and uh, we are continuing with a topic I brought up last time, and that was the topic of revival. I know if you hear the word revival, it might sound like some relic from the past, like a buggy whip or something like that, but I want to talk about it. We talked about it last week and gave you some illustrations of how revival goes down, but Specifically, in this series, we've been saying that we need to look beneath the surface of things because beneath the surface of all that we do in our households, in our families, at school, at work, whatever you do, and even at church, here at Pathway, beneath the surface of, and I'm going to work up this chart from the bottom to the top, of our personal consecration and rededication to the Lord, We've been praying for over 500 people. We've seen 437 consecrate their lives to the Lord. Beneath the surface of that, beneath the surface of our prayer and our prayer walking, we've said, Lord, we want to pray for 50,000 homes throughout Chasta County. So far, as of today, we have had, you all have gone out and prayed on location for 38,000, 38,000 homes and families. Yeah, you can celebrate that. That's super cool in Shasta County, but there's something beneath the surface of that, beneath the surface of our of our service and our compassion ministries, serving over 3,000 homes, beneath the surface of raising money to kickstart a ministry in Thailand to rescue teenage kids from sex trafficking. And many of them are deaf kids being rescued from sex trafficking. We announced that I stood here two weeks ago and said we want to raise $50,000 to kickstart this ministry in Thailand, as of today, over $20,000 has come in because of you. Thank you. But there's something even beneath the surface of that, beneath the surface of our labors and our sacrifices to proclaim the gospel and the way of salvation. We've got two speakers who are going to join us to 
um, present the gospel in a way that also defends Christianity intellectually. It's called apologetics. When you make a philosophical or intellectual or scientific defense of our faith, it's called apologetics. And we have two uh, nationally known apologetic speakers who are going to be part of what we do this fall. And that's super cool. I'm looking forward to that. I'm excited about that. But when you look beneath the surface of all of these things, of our church, of our world, of your life, of your relationships, of your dating, of your marriage, of your singleness, of your family, of your friends. When you look beneath the surface, you will see a fierce and unceasing battle between the spiritual forces of darkness and light. There is a war going on. Our universe is spiritual at its core. And in that core, there is a war between good and evil, light and darkness, God and the devil, angels and demons. And that war in that invisible supernatural realm spills over into our visible natural realm every single day. Most of the time, we're not looking beneath the surface, however. One of the mightiest weapons in God's arsenal is a thing called revival. I introduced revival last week. I said that there have been three great historical revivals that covered the whole United States. Three great awakenings. They're talked about in history books. And so I talked about what revival looks like in the three great awakenings. And today I want to dig deeper. Today I want to put on my professor hat and I want to get into the theology, the theology of revival. And I thought that one good way to kind of give you a taste of what revival feels like is I am going to read a historical account from a farmer who experienced revival back in the 1700s. In the first Great Awakening, and this is before America became independent. We were still colonies. There was a preacher. His name is George Whitfield. I talked about him a little bit last night. And George Whitfield was just this powerful preacher. He was an open-air preacher. He would travel. He came from England. He would come up and down the colonies, and he would just announce, I'm going to this field, and he would stand on a, on a wagon or something and just preach, and thousands of people would race to hear George Whitfield preach, and thousands and thousands came to know Christ because of him. In fact, one of the uh, guys who financed the travels of George Whitfield, you've heard of, his name is Ben Franklin, and Ben Franklin wasn't even a Christian. But Ben Franklin was so impressed with Whitfield's ability to communicate, and also with the fact that Whitfield didn't just preach the gospel, he went up and down the colonies and started orphanages and funded them. And uh, Franklin said, uh, George Whitfield's the only guy who can make me reach into my pocket and grab money and put it into an offering plate. That's what Ben Franklin said about George Whitfield. So when I say that Whitfield would come and people would gather, this is what I mean by gather. This is one description of that gathering from the journals of an uneducated farmer. His name is Nathan Cole. And we've got these historic journals of him. And he describes hearing that Whitfield was about to preach. He was out on the fields. He heard about this. And he dropped everything, grabbed his wife and his horse, and off they went. It's kind of long, but I want you to just listen for the energy of what was happening when people heard that Whitfield was coming to preach. Now, it pleased God to send Mr. Whitfield into this land. I longed to see and hear him. 
And then one morning, all on a sudden, there came a messenger and said, Mr. Whitfield is to preach at Middletown this morning at 10 o'clock. I was in my field at work. I dropped my tool. By the way, if you were, if you can see this online, uh, all the spelling is off. English spelling had not been standardized. D-R-O-P-T, dropped. I dropped my tool. Everything, it's, it's a little difficult to read, and it's all one sentence, but here we go. I was in my field at work. I dropped my tool that I had in my hand and run home and through my house and bade my wife to get ready quick to go and hear Mr. Whitfield preach and run to my pasture for my horse with all my might, fearing I should be too late to hear him, and took up my wife and went forward as fast as I thought the horse could bear. When my horse began to be out of breath, I would get down and put my wife on the saddle and bid her ride as fast as she could, and not stop or slack for me, except I bade her. And so I would run until I was almost out of breath, and then mount my horse again, fearing we should be too late to hear the sermon for we had 12 miles to ride double in little more than an hour. I saw before me a cloud or fog I first thought of from the great river, but as I came nearer the road, I heard a noise, something like a low rumbling thunder, and I presently found out it was the rumbling of horses' feet coming down the road, and this cloud was a cloud of dust made by the running of horses' feet. It arose some rods into the air over the tops of the hills and trees. And when I came within about 20 rods of the road, I could see men and horses slipping along. It was more like a steady stream of horses, and the rider scarcely a horse more than his length behind the other. I found a vacancy between two horses to slip in my horse, and my wife said, Lord, our clothes will be all spoiled. See how they look. And when we get down to the old meeting house, there was a great multitude. It was said to be three or 4,000. And when I look towards the great river, I see the ferry boats running swift forward and backward. When I see Mr. Whitfield come up to the scaffold, he looked almost angelical, a young, slim, slender youth before thousands of people and with a bold, undaunted countenance and my hearing how God was with him everywhere as he came along. It solemnized my mind and put me in a trembling fear before he began to preach for he looked as if he was clothed with authority from the great God, and a sweet solemnity sat on his brow, and my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. And by God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and I see my righteousness would not save me. This is what happens in a time of revival. There's just this high intensity, I and mean, it's high heat. It's maximum, large crowds, spiritual intensity, a lot of fire. People are urgent to go hear the gospel. People who normally wouldn't. Nathan Cole goes on and describes how he came to be saved, not by his own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ. And society being transformed without anybody passing any laws, but because lives were changed by the power of the gospel. I've been saying that I think our culture has passed or is close to having passed the tipping point. I don't think anyone or anything can fix us except for the power of God in revival. So let's talk about it, okay? So I've got four questions, four answers today, starting with number one, what is revival? And there are a lot of ways people use this word, and it's okay, but I want to be really precise in what revival is. Revival is a sudden and intense work of God in the church, so startling that it grabs the attention of the onlooking world, resulting in unusually large numbers 
of lost people coming to faith in Christ. So first he awakens saved people, then he redeems lost people. And as God reawakens the church, he works on our hearts. God breaks through the hardness of heart. God breaks through the lukewarmness of our Christianity. God breaks through the rationalizations in which we kind of put life with life with God on the edge and have life with God, but life with not God as the center of our lives. God points to sins that we've embraced and sins that we've excused and sins that we've hidden. So many people are complaining about the masks in church who've been wearing masks to church all their lives. God convicts of broken relationships, convicts of bitterness, convicts of vengeance, convicts of racism, sexism, greed, all the sins that push people apart, all the sins that damage a world that's already in trouble and hurt people who are already hurt. In revival, God reawakens the Christian conscience. In revival, he fast-tracks divine purposes of repentance, not legalistic repentance, but grace-inspired repentance and grace-empowered holiness and reconciliation and restoration. Revival starts among us. Revival starts here in the church, but it doesn't end here. It isn't revival until lots and lots of lost people get saved. That's when it becomes revival. Yes, he first reawakens the church, and I would use the term awakening for that. But, you know, Christians can have an awakening. Churches can have an awakening. But revival impacts the world. And until lots of people get saved in unusual numbers, it's not really revival. I'm suggesting that this, that this, this thing called revival is our only hope to counteract the levels of chaos we see in our society. Without revival, the best we can do is paper over it. All of the anger, all of the simmering cauldron of hatred and bitterness and greed and evil that's in our culture, saturated by the doctrines of demons, we could cover over it and we could, we could buy time with money. We could buy time by throwing bones to demanding people. That's not going to fix it. We need revival. Now, I won't go over it again. But three great awakenings in the United States, starting in the 1700s and the mid-1800s and the late-1800s, these events changed society. They made America Christian. And I'm not talking about legally or constitutionally or anything like that. I'm just talking about people. They made American people Christian. It was these revivals, these three great awakenings, that planted the seeds that eventually abolished slavery, it was these revivals that turned addicts and alcoholics into faithful moms and dads. It was revival that strengthened family, brought in child labor laws, emptied out saloons, emptied out brothels, created a work ethic among American citizenry, and on and on. Biblical Christianity instilled in the hearts of everyday people through revival created the kindest, most generous, most life-affirming culture history has ever known. Was it perfect? No. But there was nowhere better ever. Revival set America on a biblical and Christian foundation. And that foundation created the most free and affluent nation in the history of the world. And the more we turn our backs on our Christian foundations, the faster we race downhill toward a societal cliff. And recent events might suggest we've already fallen off the cliff. We're already past the tipping point. But this is revival, God doing something in the church that changes the world. Now, what is the cause of revival? This is question number two. What causes revival? Everybody doing okay? So far, so good? Uh, Ministry Center Auditorium, you guys doing okay? Awesome. Okay, so uh, what causes revival? There's a debate over this. Uh, 
Christian scholars and theologians debate. There's been a long-running tug-of-war over what causes revival. In the 1800s, there is an evangelist named Charles Finney. That's this guy, Charles G. Finney. He burst down the scene. Now, Finney is the preacher who kind of paved the way for evangelists who would come over a century later, like D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, even Billy Graham. They're all kind of in the train of Charles Finney. Finney was trained as a lawyer, so when he preached, he knew how to make his case. Together with several other evangelical leaders, his religious views led him to promote a lot of social reforms, such as anti-slavery and equal education for women and African Americans. He was president of a college which accepted students without regard to race or sex. And this is the early 1800s when that was not done. Under his leadership, the faculty and the students were activists for the abolition of slavery, for the Underground Railroad, and for universal education. There's a lot to like about Charles Finney. In 1835, Finney wrote a very influential book. It was called Lectures on Revivals of Religion. Lectures on Revivals of Religion. Whole thing's online. You could Google it. You could read the whole thing. It's very well written, very persuasive. It's written like a legal brief. Finney uh, represented a very controversial view of revival. He was saying things that no one had ever said before about revival. He said that revival is the predictable outcome of churches taking predictable steps. Finney taught that if we Christians would do this and this and this, then there is no doubt but that God would send down revival and lots of people would be saved and all these things would happen. And if we didn't do these things, it's just because we didn't want revival to happen. So, for example, Finney wrote, You see why you have not a revival? It is only because you do not want one, because you are neither praying for it, nor feeling anxious for it, nor putting forth efforts for it. I appeal to your own consciences. Are you making these efforts now to promote a revival? I mean, that, that'll bother your conscience if you have half a conscience. Now, his views, Charles Finney's views, represented a radical change in the understanding of revival, and his views are actually called revivalism. Revivalism. Finney taught revivalism. He said that revival comes because of what we do, we Christians do. It comes through consecration. comes through prayer. All the things we're trying to do. Revival was the predictable outcome of certain steps that Christians can take, and if there is no revival, it's because we're not taking those steps or because we're taking them insincerely. Are you following this? Okay, so this teaching was a major shift in thinking. Before Finney, revivals were seen as the sovereign work of God. That meant that only God could decide where to send revival. Only God could decide when to send revival. And yeah, we should pray and we should consecrate our lives and we should prepare. We should seek the Lord. But in the end, it's always God's choice. That was before Finney. That was the view. In fact, one author describes this earlier view that was held by the first Great Awakening heroes like Jonathan Edwards, Solomon Stoddard, George Whitefield. And this would be my view too. It would sound like this. This is talking about the first Great Awakening leaders. Therefore, they preached the gospel, pleaded with sinners, and prayed for fruit like they had for years. And for reasons known only to God, he sometimes blessed these labors remarkably, and sometimes he didn't. It wasn't like there's an on-off switch with God when it comes to revival. Okay, we're going to turn the on switch on. These revivals, in other words, were neither planned by men nor achieved by men. 
They did not involve any unusual or novel evangelistic techniques. They were understood, therefore, to be gifts of God. Revivals were understood to be gifts of God. That's the side of the coin I would land on. So what causes a revival? Answer, a revival is the sovereign choice of God given to turn around a nation or turn around a culture or turn around a region that's in the grip of Satan lies, Satan's lies and to deliver us to awakened levels of faith and a remarkable inflow of new believers in Jesus. A revival is God's call. You can't manipulate it. You can't manufacture it. You can't schedule it. Come to the revival Thursday at 7. You can't do that. You can't work it up. You can't kind of emotionally drive yourself into a frenzy. Pray for revival, yes. Long for revival, yes. But it's God's call, not ours. Revivals, yes. Revivalism, no thank you. Okay, so question number three. What is the core of revival? When you boil it down, what do you have at the heart? And I really think this one's going to surprise you, and it might be new. I heard after the first service today, someone said, I've been going to church 40 years. I've never heard that before, and it makes so much sense. I go, well, that's my job. So I'm going to say what I see scripturally as the core of revival, and then I'll try to make the case biblically. Okay, The core of revival is the coming of Jesus in power and glory. Jesus comes in power and glory. Now, look, Jesus is here, but pretty much hidden, right? So here's an illustration. You go to the movies, and, and you're sitting there with your popcorn, your soda, and your friends, and before the featured attraction starts, you get 20 minutes of what? Say it out loud. Coming, coming attractions. Coming attractions. Yeah, coming attractions. Coming attractions are mini previews of a future movie. And coming attractions are supposed to make you excited about the future movie. So they only show you some of the best, most exciting scenes. In the case of revival, the main event is the second coming of Christ. Jesus is coming again. Amen? Do you believe that? He's coming again. And that day is on its way. He's coming in the clouds of glory. Every eye will see him. It'll be absolutely amazing. Every revival is a mini preview of that glorious day. It's Jesus coming with power, not visibly, but Jesus coming with power and glory in a mini version. And like a movie's coming attraction, revivals are supposed, are supposed to make you excited for the main event, which will be the second coming of the Lord. This is the reason why so many Bible verses about the second coming do double duty as verses about revival. For example, where we started today, Isaiah 64, 1. This is a second coming verse, but it is a prayer for revival. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, tear apart the heavens, and come down. Come, Lord, come. This is a second coming verse. That the mountains might shake at your presence. That's going to happen when Jesus comes again. But before Jesus comes again, God, come in power and shake things up. Or Hosea 10, 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, plant seeds of righteousness, reap in mercy, Hesed. Break up your fallow ground. Fallow ground is farmland that hasn't been farmed for so long. It's become rock hard. And before you can plant seeds, you got to break it up with a plow. And he's saying, this is how the heart is for Christians. Your heart is fallow ground. It's so hard or lukewarm. For it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. It's a second coming verse, but it's a revival verse. And this is kind of the mothership of these, Joel 2.28. And it shall come to pass afterward. Now, the New King James says afterward, but most Bibles say in the latter days. So it's about the second coming of Christ. 
that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a second coming verse. And that verse, the prophet Joel did his ministry 800 years before Christ, so eight centuries BC. So this last one is really, really important, okay? Because after Jesus died and rose again, he gave some final teachings to his earliest believers, and then he went up to heaven. He ascended. It's called the ascension. He went rising up to, into heaven, right in front of them. They watched him float up into heaven. He was waving goodbye. See ya. See ya. See ya. To his tiny fledgling church. That was the day of the ascension. Fifty days later, fifty days later, the Jews celebrated one of their most important festivals. This festival, anybody know, was called the Feast of Pentecost. Say it out loud. Thank you. You're my favorite. Pentecost. This is called the Feast of Pentecost, and for the Feast of Pentecost, Jews would travel to Jerusalem and, and to the temple, and they would travel from all over the world. I mean, they came from all over the world. You've got to remember, there, there was a nation, but not really a nation. They were under Roman domination at the time of Jesus, and they were living in all, they had been scattered, Book of Ezra, they had been scattered all across the world, and countless nations, and though they were Jewish, they really didn't speak Hebrew. Most of them spoke the language of the nation where they were living. And yet they all come to this one place, to Jerusalem, for the day of Pentecost, a Jewish festival. Now, early on that same day, you have the whole group of believers in Jesus. There's about 120 of them, not much bigger than this room right now, and they're gathered in a small upstairs room called the upper room, and all they're doing is praying. And then this happened. I asked you to turn to Acts 2. Okay, so here's Acts 2, verse 2. And suddenly, suddenly, by the sovereignty of God, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. And here tongues means languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, this is this crazy thing that happens to Christians. I would like to remind you of our definition of a revival. A revival is a sudden and intense work of God in the church. Got it? And that's exactly what you have here in Acts chapter 2. It starts when God does something remarkable in the church, among us, among his own people. And that is exactly what he did on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came down with power on the early believers. And I have to say, this is not the first time the Holy Spirit interfaced with believers in the Lord. This is not the coming of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's been active all the way through, going all the way back to Genesis, but that's for a different sermon, okay? And when the Holy Spirit came on them in this special power, they started speaking in tongues, which means languages. These are recognizable languages that they had never studied before, didn't have Babel, didn't Google it, didn't have Google Translate. They never knew how to speak these languages before, and suddenly, boom, they can speak these languages. Can you imagine that? Let's just pray. Lord, send revival. And all of a sudden, 
Your head's on fire, and your head's on fire, and your head's on fire, and, and there's flames coming out your head. I'm like, fire extinguisher, come on, you know. Wait a minute, I got it on my head too? All of a sudden there's flames, and they don't know what's going on, and it's really freaky. And they start speaking in French and Italian and Spanish and languages none of them had ever studied before. It's just, what? Okay, what happens? Verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, so it was the sound of the thunder and the rushing wind and the fiery tongues, and then people speaking in tongues, languages. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans, meaning backwater hillbillies uneducated? Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Proselytes were Gentiles who converted to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, they were all Jewish except for the proselytes. They're all Jewish, but they're all from different, lang- different nations speaking different languages. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, oh, they're full of new wine, meaning, oh, they're just drunk. So it's, it's enough, have enough wine and you could do this thing? Seriously? Is that, is that a trick they never taught us in language class? God did something to Christians that grabbed the attention of non-Christians. And in that day it was speaking in tongues. What might he do today? Speaking in languages. What might he do today? Well, he might do a miracle like new languages. That's not out of the question. He might do a miracle like a renewed spirit of sacrifice and love, of grace and generosity, of holiness and purity, of wisdom and proclaiming the gospel. He might take people in our church who've been doing things that we know are wrong and resensitizes our conscience to those things and brings about holiness. He might take those of us who are just kind of timid and afraid to speak up for Christ and give us a remarkable boldness in proclaiming the gospel. He might do a real miracle in our society today, which would be creating humility. How much humility do you see in the land? Fear of the Lord. He might do something in which the church is distinctly different in her morality and purity and love. I don't know. But I know that what God did in that church on that day made the onlooking world sit up and take notice. And what happened after that? Peter stood up to preach. And this is verse 16. Here's what Peter preached. Because they said, you guys are drunk, or what's going on? This is that which is spoken of by the prophet Joel. And now he quotes their own Bible from 800 years earlier, but I've already read you the verse from Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, said God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And on and on. he quotes the whole long paragraph from the book of Joel. And it's in the latter days, it's about the latter days and the return of Christ. And he says, this, what you're seeing, is that. He took a second coming verse and applied it to revival. Peter goes on to quote that whole paragraph from the prophet Joel 800 years earlier. Here are Christians speaking in tongues. Here are unbelieving Jews from all across the known world. Here is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a visible, tangible way. Here is Peter quoting a verse about the last days, about the time of the second coming of Christ and saying, this is that, this is that which Joel was speaking about, or because a revival is at heart a mini-preview of the coming of the Lord. 
It's about the Lord Jesus appearing in glory. It's about the Lord Jesus being elevated. And that is why the same scriptures that speak of Christ's return so many times do double duty as describing revival. The most important truth of Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost is not that the Holy Spirit came, not that people people spoke in tongues. The most important truth, and this is so overlooked, is that it was a revival. And in revival, please get me here, the key figure is not the Holy Spirit. I was at a place, pastor's convention, and all the people on the stage, I mean, it's pretty, it kind of drove me nuts. But young pastors, young music leaders on stage, and it was all about the Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. They kept saying 50 times, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit. They were trying to whip us into a frenzy with the music and these prayers. And you can't manufacture this. Leave it alone. Because the key figure in revival is not the Holy Spirit. The key figure in revival is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would spend one-tenth of the time, you spend begging the Holy Spirit to do something. If you spend one-tenth of that time elevating Jesus Christ and speaking of him and his crucifixion and his resurrection and his salvation, Christ in his offices, Christ in his glory, Christ in his second return, Christ in his names, Christ in his deity, Christ in his humanity. If you would elevate Jesus Christ, you would see 10 times the fruit you ever saw by trying to elevate the Holy Spirit. We do not pray for the coming of the Spirit. We pray and work that the name of Jesus Christ would be exalted and lifted up. And if you read the sermon Peter preached, that is what he talked about. That's what he talked about. He talked about this Jesus whom you crucified. God has declared both Lord and Savior by raising him from the dead. And what happened? Verse 41 says what happened. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to the church. It was a church of 120 people saw 3,000 people believe on Christ in one day. It isn't revival until unusually large numbers of people come to faith in Christ. And that is what happened, and that is what Acts 2 is about. Wouldn't it be amazing to see God reach down into your life and my life and our church and all our churches and to, to have us all live through a moment in which God is such a work of purifying and empowering and emboldening us that we could not help but speak of the wonderful works of his grace, even if it's just in the language we're used to speaking. No tongues needed. Can you imagine a church so on fire for grace and truth that in one day 3,000 souls are added to the family of faith and that those 3,000 souls are going home to every nation on the face of the earth to tell the story of a Savior who loved them, died for them, and rose again. One more thing, and we're going to land this plane. What keeps revival on course? Yes, we need revival. Lord, send revival. But before God sends revival, he has to send something else, or else the revival brings more shame to the name of Christ than it brings glory. Because when Christians do this Christian thing, and they get into little rooms or their big churches or whatever, and clap and do cartwheels and get all excited about Jesus and go home unchanged and the world to the world is just nonsense. The people aren't saved as a consequence of this. They're not even preaching the gospel. Sometimes what people call revival brings more shame to the name of Christ and it brings glory. Unless God does something else, and that something else God does is a return to biblical foundations in the church. We live in an era when the biblical foundations of Christians have been shaken and fractured in so many ways. I just saw between services a new report uh, last month that more Christians than ever before are leaving the fundamental truths of Christianity. 
biblical illiteracy, illiteracy at an all-time high among church people. The substitute, instead of truth, it's emotionalism. Instead of truth, it's activism. Instead of truth, it's an experience or encounter. Instead of truth, it's subjectivism. What I think, what I feel, what I like, what do you like? More and more that that which is irrational is actually evil, but we just call it irrational. Every time you go, that makes no sense. Think about it. There's an increasing mashup between some Christian truths and a lot of secular error resulting in a mixed-up stew called syncretism, postmodernism, which is the opiate of liberal theologians, the opiate of liberal Christians, has stretched its tentacles everywhere. And the consequence is the chaos we see in culture and the doctrines of demons spread everywhere like candy thrown out to kids. Revival has a cousin. The cousin is called Reformation. Revival is about heat and energy in the church. Reformation is about truth and doctrine in the church. Reformation. Reformation, definition. Reformation is the work of God as he rebuilds the biblical foundations of the church, tears down demonic structures of deception and error, and restores the authority of Scripture and the knowledge of the gospel among his own people. And there's a reason that what Martin Luther did led to what's called the Protestant Reformation, because it was the authority of Scripture and the restoration of the gospel of grace, justification by faith. Revival is can be really emotional. Reformation is intellectual. Revival is heat. Reformation is light. We want both. We need both. The first urgent requirement to deliver the church from our chaotic condition is a thoroughgoing biblical reformation. We stand in a desperate need of a return to the Bible. Dear Pathway Church, it's back to the Bible, back to the Bible, back to the Bible. Don't believe it because I say it. Believe it because the Bible says it. God gave you a mind. Check it out. Make up your own mind. Revival, revival is like a fast-flowing river. Reformation provides the banks that keep the river in check and prevent destruction. I pray for revival. But I also pray that that revival be founded on and be the fruit of a theological reformation that will hem in the excesses that sometimes happen with revival. I shudder to think of a revival without a reformation, especially in our loose theological times. I see no other solution to the chaotic condition of the world today than a divine intervention in the form of reformation and revival. I have never been part of a revival. If you've been, come and tell me about it. I've never seen one. My late colleague, and many of you remember Paul Edwardson, that's Nathan Edwardson's grandpa, Dale Edwardson's dad. He was a statesman evangelist in our alliance, our family of faith. Paul Edwardson and I often spoke of some of his experiences of revival over fish and chips over at the lighthouse. He said there's a palpable work of God and unusual in his impact and feel. There were tears, there was renewed consecration, relationships are restored, reconciliation is effected, sins are renounced, long-forgotten truths are unburied and embraced, a path of spiritual growth, and a newfound zeal for evangelism. The church has ordinary days and extraordinary days. In those ordinary days, we preach, we minister, we serve, we pray, we strive, we grow, we do all the things our church does. In ordinary days, our job is to stay faithful. But we can hope and pray for extraordinary seasons and a downpour of God's grace in revival. Would you join me in praying for re revival in Reformation? Let's do that right now. And then I've got a, just a couple of updates to give you before our worship team comes out and leads us in our final song. Let's pray together. 
Lord God, we come before you in the name of Jesus, and we say, we exalt Jesus Christ. We lift up his name, the name above every name. Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the firstborn of all creation. You are prophet, you are priest, you are king. You are God the Son and the Son of God. You are the Son of Man. There's no one like you, there is no one beside you. You are fully God, fully human, the God-man, the theanthropic person, two natures in one person, undivided forever. And Lord, we magnify you. We thank you for your cross and our salvation that you procured there. We thank you and bless you for the glorious resurrection in which you defeated sin and Satan and death and hell and the grave and every dark force arrayed against us. We bless you for that coming day when you will come again and bring about the close of history and usher in an eternal state and your kingdom. Lord, until then, we pray for revival. We need it, Lord. We cannot, we're beyond hope. We cannot fix things. We can only gloss them over. So please, Lord, revive your church and revive this land. Heal us, Lord, we pray. We seek you as never before. Break our hearts in areas where we are obstinate and stubborn against you. Strengthen our hearts in areas where we are weak in faith. Enable us to grow. And Lord, above all else, bring us back to your word, the mighty power of the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Bring us back to your truth in deep ways, not superficial, not a little bit here and there, but restructure our thoughts and minds that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds, we pray. Lord, send revival. And until then, Lord, bless the work of our hands as we strive to be faithful in all these little things. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the God Stuff Podcast. Find out more at GodStuff.tv.